Hello, welcome to Bookworms. It's the show where we talk about books that we have recently read and enjoy. I am your host, Alex, and with me as always is my older brother, Joe. Hello. Also, that's the first time I haven't messed up the intro and had to start over again. Yeah, you are pretty bad at it. Good thing I'm good at editing. If you say so. You'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, what brings us here today? What book did we read, Joe? We have read And Then There Were None by Agatha Christie. This is one of your picks, Alex. Yes, I picked this book. It's the oldest book that we've chosen for season one. It came out in 1939 originally. Uh, for those of you who don't know who Agatha Christie is... Um, uh, how could you not know? Yeah, I know. I mean, she's, seriously. Yeah, she's synonymous with uh, the mystery genre. She is the creator of Hercule Poirot and Miss Marple, uh, two of the famous detectives in all of literature. She's also the best-selling fiction writer of all time. She's sold up there around uh, two to four billion copies of her books. The only person who rivals that is William Shakespeare. So that's pretty impressive. She's known as the Queen of Crime. Uh, she's published 80 books, and this book here that we read is, in fact, the best-selling mystery of all time. And this is my first deep dive into Agatha Christie ever, so I was excited. Yeah, I've, uh, I've read several of her books. The first one I ever read was, and then there were none. Uh, I really enjoy the Poirot mysteries, uh, the ones that I've read, and she also has several standalone novels that really exemplify what makes mystery great okay well let's get into it we'll start with reading the little blurb ten strangers are lured to an isolated island mansion off the devon coast by a mysterious u.n owen at dinner a recorded message accuses each of them in turn of having a guilty secret and by the end of the night one of the guests is dead Stranded by a violent storm and haunted by a nursery rhyme counting down one by one, as one by one they begin to die. Which among them is the killer, and will any of them survive? So yeah, definitely intriguing. Yeah, and uh, a bit about this book. It's really one of the first that introduces that concept of luring people to a isolated location, in this case an island, and then having the bodies piling up, people getting killed. It's, you, know, you, you see it in books and movies all the time nowadays, and that Glass Onion movie that came out recently, or even movies like Clue, they have that mysterious stranger show up for some unknown reason, and they become uh, victims yeah, I mean, this genre is not a genre I typically uh, read, so it's kind of a newer thing for me. I do watch a lot of those movies like The Glass Onion and Clue, but yeah, the only other real mysteries I have read are the Death on Demand books, which are pretty good for cozy mysteries. So why don't you start in with what the nursery rhyme is, Alex? Don't be offended, but the original nursery rhyme... Uh, it was called The Ten Little N-Words. It has since changed, uh, since the publication of this book. So the original title of this book was Ten Little N-Words. 
uh, back when it was first published in 1939. In the U.S., it got immediately changed to Ten Little Indians, which then got changed in the 50s, too, and then there were none. Yeah, you would have thought that would have been a pretty easy call there from the get-go when they <laughs> <laughs> published it in the U.S. That, that would also not work. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so like back in 30s, 40s, the, the N-word wasn't a racial slur in England. England. It, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't by that time in the U.S., which is why they changed the title to Ten Little Indians, which even nowadays is still not okay. That's why the poem at the beginning of this book is called Ten Little Soldiers, which I will read to you right now. Ten little soldier boys went out to dine. One choked his little self, and then there were nine. Nine little soldier boys sat up very late. One overslept himself, and then there were eight. Eight little soldier boys traveling in Devon. One said he'd stay there, and then there were seven. Seven little soldier boys chopping up sticks. One chopped himself in half, and then there were six. Six little soldier boys playing with a hive. A bumblebee stung one, and then there were five. Five little soldier boys going in for law. One got to chancery, and then there were four. Four little soldier boys going out to sea. A red herring swallowed one, and then there were three. Three little soldier boys walking in the zoo. A big bear hugged one, and then there were two. Two little soldier boys sitting in the sun. One got frizzled up, and then there was one. One little soldier boy left all alone. He went and hanged himself, and then there were none. Yeah, so it's basically outlining how everyone in the story is going to die. And in uh, chapter one, we're introduced to well, eight of the ten characters, really. Yeah. You know, the, the other two are kind of, you know, already there, and we we meet them pretty quick once everyone gets to the island. And that uh, use of children's poems, because believe it or not, that's actually a children's poem. Uh, <laughs> they were uh, creepy back in the day. Oh yeah, uh, Agatha Christie. Uh, that's another common uh, motif of her writing is using children's poems and rhymes to accentuate the plot or she finds ways to incorporate it into her stories uh, several of her books actually are titles of nursery rhymes she has a i think she has one called hickory dickory dock and silly little things like that she has fun with it so yeah let's get into meeting some of the characters who are the yeah, we're not, we won't get into all 10 but or who are the you know the you know, what you consider the important ones, Alex. Yeah, so you mentioned in Chapter 1 we meet the first eight characters. Some of them don't really last very long uh, into this book, so uh, the m- probably, there's, there's about, probably six of them are super-duper important. Uh, the most I'd, imp- say, I'd say about five. You've got Blore, the detective, you got... Um, the, the two women, uh, the older one and the younger one, who is it, Vera and... Uh, Brent. Brent, yeah. You have the Doctor, Wargrave, and who's the adventurer guy there? Oh, Lombard? Lombard. Yeah, so that's, yeah, that's six, like I uh, said. Six, okay, so yeah. Yeah, yeah so I was right. Uh, you're better at counting. <laughs> uh, the other four, they do factor in. There's the, I forget his name, the first one to die, who was the fast driver. 
And then there's the two butlers. One butler and... And the butler and cook. his wife. Yeah. Oh, the, uh, the, uh, the, colonel. Uh, the colonel. Yeah, the colonel. I got really attached to with his, uh, his story before he passed. Because, get, well, I'll get into him in a little bit. But, uh, introducing those characters in Chapter 1, the first person you meet is the Judge Lawrence Wargrave. Chapter 1 is actually really well done in introducing these eight characters. It gives you their motivation for going to the island, a little bit about their past, and you, you learn that each of them has some sort of secret that they're, keep, they're keeping that they live with. Yeah, I mean, it definitely sets up the whole book really well. It gets, you know, it gives a good explanation why everyone's going to this island and the fact that nobody really knows each other. A few of them know of each other, as these are all, you know, or many of them are prominent members of England. Yeah, some are being called for a party, some are being called for work, some are being called for adventure, some are being called to reminisce with old friends. They're being summoned by a man named U.N. Owen, or some name that kind of matches that, that phrase. They each have slight variations on them, however. Yeah, and everyone thinks that they know who is the one that's inviting them, even though they don't remember exactly how they know that person or why they know that person. If you want, we can do, do a quick little rundown of each character, give them their names and professions. Yeah, why don't you do that? All right, so we got Lawrence Wargrave, the recently retired judge. We have Vera Claythorne, a uh, young woman who's like a caretaker. Philip Lombard, an adventurer. We have Emily Brent, who's an older, wealthier woman. There's General MacArthur. Oh, we call him a colonel. He's a general, excuse me, who is a general. Dr. Armstrong, a doctor. His character, they tell a lot right up front. You learn that he's uh, got a drinking problem, and it led to the death of a patient of his. That, and he's also a bit of a quack, even though he acknowledges it, because he realizes most people don't want real medicine. They want the showmanship. We have Tony Marston, the fast driver, the thrill seeker, who killed two people with his vehicle once. And we also meet Mr. Bloor, who is set up to be almost an instant red herring because he appears to know more about the invitation than anybody else because he has files on all the other people going to the island. So it's immediate setup of mystery. You get a quick rundown, surface level information on each character, but you know that there's a lot more layers that you're about to peel back in the next couple hundred pages. And the only people we don't meet in Chapter 1 are Rogers the butler and Mrs. Rogers the cook. Though we do meet them pretty quickly in Chapter 2 once everyone starts arriving on the island. Yeah, so let's uh, get into it. Almost immediately everyone's kind of confused of why you've been called there when they see each other. And that night we have a recording of all the crimes that these people have supposedly committed. And, you know, we won't really get into it right this instant because a lot of them, you know, while interesting, aren't very pertinent to move the plot along. It's more just the method of murder that they get taken out. 
Yeah, one thing that I find interesting is very few of these characters, even though they are presented with their crimes by that phonograph record, they do not, they either deny it or they have justified it in their minds, which I find to be very Yeah, yeah none of them think they actually c committed a crime, except for maybe Vera, who is constantly questioning herself on did she kill the uh, kid she was watching on purpose or if it was more of a freak accident yeah she's i say vera is probably the what you consider to be the protagonist of this she gets the most uh, point perspective time and we get the deepest dive into her inner workings and she's clearly haunted by a decision that she made that led to the death of the child she was in charge of caring for yeah, I mean, other than Hertz, the, the doctor there that we get a lot from, too. The rest of the characters seem to just kind of come in and out of their two perspectives. Yeah, we see a lump, lot of Lombard and Bloor, but they're really just, you know, they're trying to take charge and be uh, the investigators to figure out why bodies are dropping. Uh, but right that night of that dinner, the first person that dies is Marston, which I found to be an interesting choice. Because we learn at the end of the book that the killer kills these people in order based on severity of their crimes. So Marston... And also the uh, manner which they die is in perspective of the pain that they caused. So Marston, who ran over two children and refused to acknowledge that it was his fault, even though he was drunk driving and speeding, you know, he gets a very painful death where he basically suffocates to death yeah he gets poisoned which is sudden and shocking in the way it's done um i found it interesting you you spoilers you do find out who the uh, killer is at the end but we'll, we'll get to that uh, alex this whole thing is a spoiler thing that's true you know what this this book's like 80 years old i think <laughs> i think we're i think we're good on spoilers no it's uh, a to be honest i thought marzen faked his death Oh, you thought he was a killer? Yeah, for a, quite a while there. I was like, you know, I, I kept questioning it, but it was like, how convenient he's the first one to die and by a way of poison, or if the right kind of poison could lay out those symptoms, but at the same time just lower his heart and breathing rate enough where he could survive and come out of it hours later. Yeah, but and, the, uh... and the fact that later in the book they never really mentioned checking on the bodies of the dead to see if any of them aren't really dead they just throw them back into their assigned rooms and leave them yeah there's a lot the uh the characters make a lot of mistakes going through this but also you know they're doomed from the beginning it's yeah, yeah and uh vera she she's the first one to realize that the little rhyme is the manner in which they're all gonna die and she kind of gets obsessed with it yeah she really focuses on it also the first person to realize that they're all gonna die is general macarthur but he's also kind of looking forward to it he's kind of ready to die because he's probably one of the first ones to admit to his crimes and say yeah i'm ready yeah he uh that's why i i honed in on him he's the third one to die he had sent someone uh, intentionally to his death during a battle and he it's the first person to put together that someone on the island is going to kill everybody, and he's really the only character throughout the entire the duration of the book that 
knows what he did was wrong, and he knows that this is the penance that he is going to pay for his trans transgressions. But everyone else sees him as this uh, senile old man who's off off on his own and you know, belongs in some sort of loony bin. Yeah, it's, just, it's kind of funny how right before each character dies, they kind of have this moment of insanity where they're basically saying, this is it, this is my time to die, and I'm ready. There's very few that are that say, no, I got to survive, except for maybe Blor and Lombard. Uh, the rest eventually come to some realization that they might have done wrong. Maybe Miss Brent is one of the few that, you know, justifies everything through her religious zealous. Yeah, Brent Brent gladly admits what she does and does not regret it at all. It's turning out a uh, turning away a pregnant woman who later dies. And some of these crimes that they they commit are pretty hard to say that was that really a crime. Like Miss Brent, I think she is right in saying how is it necessarily her fault? Yes, she turned this woman out for a fairly superfluous reason, even though even back in the day that she wouldn't have been considered in that much of the wrong. But how is this woman then freezing to death because she has literally nobody else that she feels like she can turn to? You know, how is Miss Brent, you know, directly responsible? Yeah, yeah, she's responsible in some sense, but for her to Miss Brent to get murdered over it is that really a just cause, a true eye for an eye? And we learn that's why the killer chooses these people is because the crimes they committed are really beyond the law. The deaths are either treated lightly, like in the case with Marston and his vehicular homicide, or the death might be ruled an accident. Uh, like, like with uh, Vera. Like with Vera or the Rogers. Yeah, or the even the doctor when he was drunk while operating. Yeah, there was no way to really prove that the, the killer when he was collecting his research on these people. He had to get a lot of anecdotal information and come up with his own judgment. Yeah, it was kind of one of those deals where, you know, one wrong, missaid word from someone that the killer didn't really know and someone innocent could have easily been killed. Again, all these people, yeah, they, they may have done wrong, but some of them, the, the deaths kind of were accidental. Like Miss Vera... When her ward dies, the, the the kid wanted to do what ended up killing him, and it was it was something that he could have normally done, and but because she wasn't watching him close enough, he ended up drowning. Yeah, hers was definitely the I'd say it's the most complex backstory because again, there's layers to her story. First, yeah, it's portrayed as an accident. But as you go along, you realize more and more she intentionally let that child die. She made it look like she was trying to save him, but she didn't really, like when he got pulled out to sea, she didn't actually go out to save him. She just got in the water. It made it look like she was trying to do that. But at the same time, how much of that is her memory changing because she's under a lot of stress and all these people are dying for what they did? And yeah, her ex-fiance, you know, believe that yeah she did this but even she's not totally sure when in the beginning of the book when she's thinking back to it did I do that on purpose or was it just a major lapse in judgment by me yeah, and that 
mental anguish she goes through between her doing that and also the trauma, the experience of the, the weekend at this island leads her to, as the final person left on the island, to kill herself. Yeah, and I think it was almost more punishment to leave her alive, honestly, because she was in so much anguish over even before going to the island. Basically, after her fiancé left her, she couldn't couldn't move on with her life. She's just basically becoming a drifter, going from job to job, squeaking out a living, while reliving the moments of that child's death over and over and over in her head every night. I mean, even the doctor, for drinking and possibly, you know, through negligence, killing someone on the operating table, you know, back then... That probably wasn't that uncommon. The doctors drinking and operating, that's just what they did. Yeah. How else do you have fun? Yeah. I mean, yeah, people reading it today, they're going to say, well, that, you can't do that if a doctor drank while working on someone or a surgeon was drinking while, while they were cutting someone open. But it's different times today. Back in the 20s and 30s and 40s, medicine was very primitive. There were a lot of quacks out there. And this guy, yeah, he made a mistake. He, you know, it sounded like it was a mistake that could have been made while sober, too. It was just pure happenstance that he happened to be drunk and slightly more likely to, to make that mistake. And he's another one that you know, lived in fear and anguish his whole life that he was going to get discovered because he knew one of the nurses knew. And you also learn that he's, well, he's a character that makes a mistake in the story that allows the final few people to get killed with the killer remaining undetected. Yeah, so one, one problem I had with this story, there's only a couple of problems, but this is one of the ones that in my head kind of stood out glaringly. So in the beginning when they realize someone's trying to kill them and they're trying to figure out who this UN Owen is, they take a foot-long ruler and measure every room in the house and figure out that there's no possibility of having a secret room on this island. They're claiming nobody you know, could possibly be hiding on that island. They even climbed down a cliff at one point to see if there's a cave, and it's such a crazy climb that they need a rope and all sorts of stuff, and kind of ridiculous that someone could just climb in and out of there without already having something obvious to, to use to get in there. But I just I thought it was kind of comical that oh there's no possibility of anyone hiding on this island as we three of us stick together and slowly walk around a giant mansion and a deserted island with a ruler with a yeah with a one foot ruler. Some of the plot is kind of silly and that's Alex, Alex, question for you: Did you know they're not making twelve inch rulers any longer or any shorter? <laughs> <laughs> um, the <laughs> well moving on <laughs> yeah some of the uh, plot points are silly and there is some humor you find that in a lot of Christie's work even with darker subject matter she does insert some humor into the stories or some ridiculous aspects that normal people wouldn't do, whether that's to move the plot along or to provide some levity during an otherwise dark story. 
Well, that's probably up for the re reader to decide, or me to decide. She's doing it to lighten up the story. So, what were some of the high points for you in this story, low points that you feel like you want to talk about? Yeah, so high points, um, we mentioned already, the first chapter does an excellent job setting up the characters, uh, introducing them, and hinting at the role that they're going to play in the story. Uh, I mentioned General MacArthur, his uh, coming to terms with what's happening and accepting his fate. I thought that was beautifully done. And also the uh, chapter 16, which is the final chapter with our ten people. So by that time there are only two characters left. We got Lombard, the adventurer, and we got Vera. And you'd think, okay, yeah, they, one, they, they, one of them is the killer. We're, gonna, we're about to find out who it is. Except that when you're reading it, you really realize that neither of them could be the killer. Because, again, you know they don't realize it, but we're seeing the inner monologues of them. And we know Vera just isn't capable, and Lombard just isn't that type. So you, you know something else fishy is going on. Yeah. And, Chris and, and then there's the fact the way Bloor died, and there's just no explanation. That's one of the, I think, the, the low points of the story is... Just the, the the way he died and to fit into the the rhyme, the nursery rhyme. Yeah, Blur's death is probably the biggest plot hole in the whole thing. I was going to get to that after I'm done with my high points, but anyway. Wah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so chapter 16, Lombard and Vera, the only two left. And just the the writing in that chapter is absolutely beautiful because... Nothing gives away anything about who the killer is. It could be either one of them. It could be neither of them. All we know is that they each think the other is the killer. And every move that nothing they say gives away that they're afraid of the other or anything like that. All we know is that there's a scuffle and Vera is the last survivor on the island. And then she goes back to her room and finds a noose hanging in her bedroom that wasn't there before that wasn't there before and she chooses to end her life there it just she's in a daze the whole way and i think this is the, the one murder where basically somebody else did the killing for the killer and i think if somehow in the story lombard got away with a gun instead of vera there would have been no way he would have killed himself so it was almost like it had to be Vera. You going into it, you see that she has to come out on top because she's the only one that takes the nursery rhyme seriously and wants to see it through to the end, even though that would mean her death. Yeah, and Lombard, yeah, he would have probably killed Vera and found a way off the island. If that had happened, I'm, I'm sure it's never explained in the book, but the killer probably had a backup plan for that. I don't think he did. I think he, that that was, again, one of the, the hard things to swallow in this whole story was everyone had to die when they died. If someone happened to screw up the killer's plans, there would have been major issues with filling in that nursery rhyme. You know, in reading some interviews from Christie, that was one of the hardest things she had in writing where she actually had to plot this out 
to keep it from becoming ridiculous or overly forced. But even still, it was at times very forced because there was no other choice with the goal that she set up for the whole thing. Yeah, so, I mean, Chapter 16, very well done. You're absolutely right, though. If it didn't go that way, the killer's plans would have been foiled and there would have been at least one survivor. Um, well, and, and going into low points, though, well, talking well, about... Well, it was just, I mean, yeah, yeah, that was probably the, the you know, the, the last major obvious one, but there were other times where, like, Miss Brent, her, her death was literal moments for the killer to operate. Wargrave's death, or as we learned, fake death, uh, there was no no way anyone could have done that other than someone that had already been supposedly killed. I said it was just that some of these things it was so minutely planned that one minor thing changing in the story, the whole thing would have unraveled. Yeah, it was definitely like it's that that plotting is like it has to be exact. And in this story, it is. Uh, I kept comparing it to uh, it's like the Die Hard of mystery novels because, like, one wrong move by John McClane, and you know he's a corpse, but he somehow manages to kill a dozen people, say, and reconnect with his wife. Yeah, and I get like I when I was reading this, I also watched The Glass Onion, which has many faults, but it's also accused of a lot of the the, the same things. But to a, you know, I felt like to a lesser extent, since there's only one person killed, well, two people, I guess, but you know, one person on the island killed. But it's, you know, just one of those things that with these kinds of mysteries, you almost have to just kind of go on expecting it. Yeah, there's some suspend suspension of belief that goes into really any mystery that you read. Yeah, and there's a reason why these are kind of called cozy mysteries. They're not the thrillers or the really gritty i'd say this goes like above cozy mystery because like cozy you usually don't see the violence or death uh you do see it here though for most of the people that get killed i i disagree i mean the the death on demand books you you see often the the violence of the deaths it's just usually it's portrayed in a very muted way you know where that's not realistic and how brutal a murder really is uh, yeah, when the the butler, you know, is described being axed to death, yeah, that's brutal. But you see that in real life, and you almost can't even comprehend what you're seeing. Yeah, we'll get into that when we read uh, Dennis Lehane later on. So yeah, so I mean, the, yeah, your low points. Yeah, low points. Uh, so Bloor's death is a complete crime of opportunity. He's just in the wrong place, wrong time, and this is really where like. If something goes wrong, then the killer's plan is foiled because uh, he's got to drop a bear statue out of a window and hit this guy in the head with it in order to kill him. And I'm like, did you really plan this out months in advance? And you're just like, I'm just going to wait till he's standing under this window, then bam. After every, the other seven people are dead. <laughs> yeah. I personally assume that he the, the killer had backup plans, but it's astounding that his first idea worked every time. It also bothered me that there was no obvious way to set up a booby trap that Lombard and Vera are accusing the other of setting up, even though when they, they see it, it's like, okay, if a statue fell out of a window that shouldn't have been there, 
how does that work out so perfectly while we're watching each other? So, I mean, that, that was my lowest point was Blower's death. Everything else, it's at least believable. I mean, you got into Brent's death where the killer had to be super fast and all that, but that's at least, you can, uh, you can kind of see it almost. And I mean, in the the end there, I know a lot of people, it's, you know, find it controversial, the added revealing chapter that came after the original publication. But the, the whole bit where Wargrave convinces the doctor to assist him, you know, yeah. Yeah, reading, reading the book, that's the only thing that you can't really put together, is that Wargrave, Wargrave's the killer, yeah. uh, <laughs> is that Wargrave needed help to do the murders. Yeah, because basically Wargrave needed the doctor to fake his Wargrave's death. And that was actually pretty believable, where the whole story... The doctor kind of looks up to Wargrave, even though he knows that Wargrave is kind of shady at times. He still finds him admirable and is willing to follow him around. Yeah, and we haven't really talked about Wargrave much as a character. Yeah, we were kind of bouncing around since he is the killer, so we figured yeah. we'd save him till later. Yeah. But yeah, he's got this reputation. Like, he uses that reputation to come off as basically takes yeah. control of the situation every time someone dies and that allows him to get further in his plans than a lot of other people would be able to get and and it works because people respect him because he's this well-known judge that everyone knew was hard on criminals and yeah, he's a hanging judge and he just you know everyone respects him so they even the the two adventurers they're uh even though they want to take charge or Bloor wants to take charge, as soon as Wargrave says something, they stop and they listen. He, he's the only real authority figure in an island full of people that think they're authority figures. Yeah, one funny thing that he does is he subtly drops hints that he's the one orchestrating everything. There's several times where like, he's the one who comes to the, rev- like, the revelation that the killer is one of them. He also, shortly before his death, uh, states that the killer has stated who he is, and you know, it's it's very subtle, like blink and you miss it, like one-liners that he's said throughout the book. But he does state that he is the killer. Yeah, it's always with something that could be a double meaning, though, so it's never truly obvious. And when he does fake his death, you know, when you don't realize it, it was an awfully fishy death. I thought it's like, you know, how does this guy get sh- shot by a gun? He gets shot in the head and then dressed up like a judge. Yeah, and when ev- literally everybody that was still alive is together, and they're only saying, "Oh, it could have been, you know, s- the person in the back of the line, or you know, somebody got went out of sight for two moments, so that they could have ran around the house and shot him." It was just very convenient. Yeah, Christy does a good job. Like explaining how like each death, each of the surviving people, could have done it somehow, so that none of them are ever. Yeah, she she makes yeah. sure they're all separated at some point during the the time of death window. So that's that's kind of the story. Where our thoughts. Uh, what did you think of the the added chapter? Did was it worth putting in, or did you would you have rather had no clue who it was and been guessing? Well, I always flip-flop on that. So it's it's fun not knowing, 
because you know it eats away at you. You wanna you wanna know who did it, how they did it, why they did it. However, sometimes when you learn that, it can be a disappointment. And yeah, I, I feel like the Wargrave's manuscript at the end is probably the weakest part of the book. Yeah, I thought it was good to see his reasoning why he did it, but it definitely had its weak points. He never admits culpability in his supposed crimes. It was all just a convenient excuse, and he considered his tenth death someone that was just mentioned in the first chapter of the book. That brought uh, Lombard. Was it Lombard or was it Marsden? It was Lombard. Uh, his buddy. Yeah, it was Lombard. His buddy sent him in his stead because Lombard was short on cash. So it, it definitely rang wrong and it kind of ruined the, the thought of the, the whole nursery rhyme. Everyone has to die at the right point and the judge killing himself the way he did to still make it look like he had been murdered in that the right order. Yeah. Which again also made no sense why he felt he had to, to die instead of just disappear if he felt that he had no wrongdoing. He had a uh, terminal illness and he wanted to go out in style was his main motivation for doing it um, I, f I found that manuscript to be almost like, kind of like you know like mysteries like the, the killer always wants to admit what they did even though they're trying to avoid punishment for it the long uh, guy tried in James Bond of why he did it how he did it and exactly. what his future plans are yeah. I think uh, I think Christy was uh, a victim of that she wanted to really explain why and how yeah she she wanted to show off her cleverness and you know it's it's very clever. Most of the deaths work out very well, and there are some cool concepts in that chapter. I'm not saying it's a bad ending. It's just I think the book would have been much stronger, and there would have been decades of speculation. And people would have been going nuts. Yeah, people would be going nuts forever and ever trying to figure out who did it, and that would have been really cool. Is like I said, you know, the the first guy to die. You know, I'm looking at it as like, yeah, he could have faked his death and been the one the whole time, and no, no one would have been the wiser. The doctor could have been the one that did it till he washed up yeah. on shore. At yeah. that point, everyone's gone so crazy that they're just like, okay, we got to kill each other now. Yeah. Even Mrs. Rogers could have done it. Like she died in her sleep. Yeah. She was the second one to go. She handled the food, so she could have poisoned Marston and then faked her death. I think, I think the only one that couldn't have done it was her husband, the butler. Yeah, he got murdered with an axe. It's, it's hard to fake your death with axe murder. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, one part I had a problem with that was after reading the, the the last added chapter was thinking back to the Mr. Rogers' uh, murder and how Wargrave axes him, gets back to his room, acts like he's just essentially getting up and you know completely clean of blood and gore and all that stuff and I don't know if you've ever killed anything with an axe Alex or really just not this week not this week okay it gets kind of messy though I mean you know, just you get bloods flying everywhere it's yeah, let's not forget that Wargrave is really old yeah, he's in his he's, 70s anyways yeah, he's old he's dying and yet he has to do some very limber acts to, uh, to evade detection sometimes and I know it sounds like we're shitting on this book. We're really not. 
I mean, this was a great read. It was a page turner for sure. It was a real pleasure. Yes, yeah, three hundred pages, but it, it 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 reads like it's a hundred and fifty. Yeah, it goes it goes fast. It's engaging. It's very gripping, especially my first read. Like I, I read it in like two sittings, just because I'm like I got I gotta know how it ends. And that's full tribute to Christie and her writing. It's, there's a reason she's the best selling author of all time. It's, because she can, she's got that power to write a short, tensely written mystery novel that keeps you guessing to the very end. Yeah, she's definitely a master of her craft. Uh, so that gets me to some of my questions here, unless if there's something else you want to say, Alex. I know, go right ahead. Okay. Well, so my first kind of question is, what makes Christy the queen of mystery, and how does she prove it in this story? Uh, Christy is the queen of mystery, for a number of reasons. So, just sheer volume of sales. It's hard to argue with someone who sells that many copies of her books and say she's not the queen of anything. I mean, Stephen King, he's the king of horror because yeah. he sells hundreds of millions of his books. And, and not only that, like both of them are prolific writers. And something with Christy that you know someone had pointed out to me once. She writes a story, and say someone you know, a murder was committed a certain way by a certain person, she can never use that plot device again to to do the murder. So she has to come, every story has to be done differently. And this one, and it's not one of her first mysteries she wrote by any stretch, but she has to kill ten people in one story in new ways that she had never done before. Yeah, and when you read, like, her Poirot mysteries, they're each different, even though Poirot, he's... You know, he's the same in every book, pretty much. He is this cantankerous Belgian detec- uh, detective who's, you know, he's on vacation or doing something else, and he stumbles upon a murder that he has to only he can solve, which kind of like the murder she wrote. Jokes were like, why does this old lady keep arriving in towns where there's all of a sudden people get killed? <laughs> but anyway. Plot twist, she killed everyone. <laughs> uh, but Christie's plotting the way she can craft a story and make each sing- each one, she wrote over 80 novels, and each one of them is unique in their own way. And those plot twists, who the murderer is, some of the, some of the villains in her story, it's shocking who it is. I mean, she's had uh, children be murderers. She's had men and women. She even, uh, there's even one of her novels where the narrator of the story, you find out at the end is the murderer, and you had no idea. <laughs> you were reading from the killer's perspective the entire time. So that quality of her writing makes her the queen of mystery. And yeah, but I mean, how does she prove it in this story? Well, I'm getting to that. Oh, okay. So well, you're, you're babbling. So yeah. So Just as you said, when you went along. Yeah. So as you as you said, like she does that plotting and killing with ten different victims, and the fact that you never know throughout the entirety of the story who the killer is, even when there's only two people left, even when there's one person left, that you see that quality that why she's the queen in this book is that crown on her head yeah because even at the end even if you know at one point i was thinking oh maybe you know it was early on the story but it was like maybe everyone's killing everyone in this because there's some secret you know grudge that you know between certain characters and they're all connected in a way because that was hinted at where you know blore has dossiers on everyone the judge and the doctor know each other. 
Yeah, they're all connected somehow in some yeah. way, shape, yeah. or form. Yeah they, they, yeah, they all have some sort of yeah. tenuous connection. It's like, well, maybe that connection is a little bit deeper. And then yeah, they got that six degrees of Kevin Bacon going. So how does Christie use forensic and psychology in this book during a time that those fields were in their infancy? Uh, you see the psychology especially using the fear and uncertainty in the characters causes them to not trust each other, causes them to make mistakes, causes them to act, lash out in paranoid ways that makes them suspicious. She really plays on that aspect of human nature. Uh, the for- forensics is a little bit difficult to talk about because none of these people are forensics experts. But but at um, the same time, for, with that, like say, you, know, cause you have the doctor who is checking these people out. He's like, you know, this is a poison. I don't know what kind of poison, but we saw him take a drink from this glass. I can taste, you know, this compound that could be these these kinds of poisons that would lead to this death. Yeah, or, but even even with the poisons, it's uh, it goes back into that paranoia because most of the story you only know only the doctor has anything that could be considered poison. Much like Lombard's the only person with a gun, and a gun gets used to kill Wargrave, so allegedly. And Lombard. And Lombard. <laughs> Certainly. And I mean, going back to the psychology of it, I think there's definitely a lot more psychology than forensics in this. But this, the psychology, I mean, all ten characters have different neuroses, different psychoses that are very distinct issues. You know, Wargrave refusing to admit that he did wrong even in the end. Uh, the alcoholism of the doctor. Yeah, or Brent's uh, sanctimonious attitude yeah. towards things. Yeah, Marsden's uh, narcissism. And even Lombard's narcissism in a different aspect. Bloor being a uh, constant liar can't really tell the truth, which adds everyone's fears of who's telling what for lies and truths. And him just being, as we find out later, a dirty cop. So it's definitely a you know, complex psychological type story for, for these characters when, once you start diving deeper and deeper into them. And the character's experience and also the reader experiences it too. We don't know who it is. We don't know who we can trust when we explore these characters. So were the plot twists and red herrings believable? And we've kind of cover the the ones that were forced and over the top but how about like the the doctor's death was that you know is that that whole sequence of events of people running around in the dark you know waiting long minutes between chasing someone that they, they think may be the killer the doctor at that point we're being led to believe that the doctor is definitely the killer because he's the only one that has the capabilities for the majority of the murders at that time and then he just disappears. And the, his death lines up with a nursery rhyme about a red herring. I don't think any of the red herrings are particularly believable. Uh, you could... Uh, and Christie's well-known for red herrings. If you're familiar with her writing, you know that there's going to be some of those deceptions and trickery that she puts in to make it harder to guess what reality is. I don't know if the red herrings were dramatically over the top, but... There's so much doubt as to what's happening in this book at any given point. It's hard to s- accept anything as what what's real. 
yeah, and as you kind of pointed out to me before we hit record, there's like 12 red herrings throughout the book. And it's, like you said, they're all so confusing and through different people's perspectives that you're never quite sure what is real, what isn't. You know, is what it, is the, the killer trying to make you see versus, you know, what someone else is seeing. And yeah, and there's things like the gun, Lombard's gun goes missing, someone gets killed with the gun, and then Lombard finds the gun back in his room. But it's worded in a way where you're like, oh, was Lombard hiding the gun? But later on, or quickly after that, he reveals like, oh, I have the gun right here. Which kind of, you know, again, one of those things is like, that makes no sense. Yeah. Why would he... Just, oh, yeah, I have the gun again. Don't worry, guys. Yeah. We're, we're protected again. <laughs> I think she did that as the classic thriller thing where you end a chapter on a cliffhanger to get you to read the next chapter. I mean, again, this is another question we kind of covered already, but does Christy give you enough clues to solve the mystery, or does she leave enough out that you really needed that last added chapter? Like I said earlier, yeah, Wargrave does state a few times that he is a killer. He does it in vague ways. It can mean multiple different things. And going into the red herrings, it's hard to tell what's happening. I, the only part of Wargrave's manuscript that's not something you could dig out of the text was the fact that he got help from Dr. Armstrong for the faking his death so that he could run around undetected because he yeah. dupes, yeah, because he dupes the doctor into helping him thinking like he convinces the doctor of his innocence and then fakes his death and then he kills the doctor yeah and i think reading through it for the first time i i, I assume someone had faked their death you know pretty early on that someone that would have had to unless if they had is said someone hiding that they just were too stupid to find yeah, or there really was a un owen yeah uh, unknown yeah, yeah. talking about lows actually <laughs> back to that. that was the stupidest thing uh, yeah but Especially when they spent so much time on it. Yeah. But then, you know, also like when I said that, you know, maybe multiple people are killing each other through connections. So there was really the only three possibilities. And I just, you know, I didn't, you know, even reading carefully, you know, for, you know, that first time through, I don't, I never got Wargrave, even though he was definitely a leading suspect. You know, I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't thought that he was the one that faked his death. Again, as I said, I thought it was, someone earlier yeah uh, I, I didn't know what to expect on my first read my second one it was fun going back and seeing all those hints that are dropped throughout well, do you think those hints were enough to say without that final chapter that yeah it was definitely him i don't think so no i mean that that is one problem in a lot of mysteries that people complain about where the uh i know like the colombo mysteries are notorious for it, where they they were don't give out the the facts that yeah, you know, the detective knows when he's making the reveal, but you never learned about because they didn't want you know the the people watching to be able to figure it out. And I felt like you know with this one, anyways, we were never given quite enough. And again, if we didn't have that final chapter, that would have been fine. I think you know where we're constantly guessing and second guessing. I think with that added chapter, that kind of as a lot of people in the comment sections on like good reason why not can complain that it kind of ruins it because now it's like, yeah, it definitely was him and go back and try to figure out if it was enough or not. Yeah, I'd say just final thought on that. It's, I think the people that might complain about that last chapter would also 
you know, be demanding that last chapter oh, yeah, if it wasn't you, there. The people that Cause I know. I know I'm, I'd be the same way. I'm like, oh, I, I gotta know. Gotta know. I'd be exploring forums. It's like when I watched uh, Mulholland Drive for the first time, and I'm like, what the hell is this movie about? And I'm like looking at forums where they're talking about imagery in that movie and like how like the dream corresponds to real life and things like that. Like, but like, as, as you said early too that the ability to just go back and have that constant dialogue for the next hundred years of who done it, you know, over analyzing and reanalyzing and it's like, yeah, we're pretty sure it was a great but it still could have been the doctor and by the time he died everyone's just kinda nutty and off in each other and Yeah, had to rely on that paranoia to kill off the last few. Uh, like I said, you know, I originally thought it was the first guy to die just because that would have been convenient, him fake a death and then drink the poison to finish himself off at the end and or you know even if we didn't have that last chapter someone could have survived potentially and walked off that island even though we were led to believe they all died and that would have been something to think about too oh i got alex thinking <laughs> well, i'm just thinking a, a, like an alternate ending having just some like shadowy figure like like the the water's clear a shadowy figure gets in a boat, sails to the mainland. Like that'd be cool too. Yeah, just have them walk out of the secret room that they said swore up and down couldn't be there. Like a you know under you know a latch door under a carpet or something. Yeah, and like yes, like and it can be explained. Like they missed it and their paranoia and yeah. their yeah, unfamiliarity so with the yeah, land. Yeah, you have a a carpet laid down and just you know it's a sub basement kind of thing. So. What is your conclusion about the story? That that question and one question I had, I think they can kind of tie in pretty well because my question was, why do you think this is the best-selling mystery novel of all time? Like It's one of the top ten best-selling books of all time. Well, the big thing with this book is it introduces that concept of being lured to an island or a mysterious location and bodies piling up. We talked about difficulty that Christy had in writing this book because she had to plan 10 unique deaths and also find ways to make it so the killer can remain undetectable throughout the whole thing. I think she does a fine job. Is it the best mystery I've ever read in my whole life? Well, probably not. Is it really good, incredibly memorable, and something that with or without that final manuscript you can talk about? So you're blue in the face? Absolutely. So I, you know, solid, solid five star novel for me. Yeah, I, I agree. It's a, probably not the best mystery novel out there. As I said, I haven't read a, a ton of them, but you know, this is definitely a complex story with a lot of layers, and it's very well written. It's fast paced, and just a fun read that leaves you guessing to the very end. Definitely highly recommend it. So I guess kind of the the last bit our thesis here is uh, you know, how this book exemplifies Agatha Christie as the Queen of Mysteries. And I think we've been kind of saying that where she basically took something that would be ridiculous for most authors and made a masterpiece out of it. As, as Christie repeatedly would say in interviews, you know, how do you have 10 people on an island by themselves and have everyone die at the end without it seeming campy or over the top or you know completely 
It's like a locked door. Yeah, like a locked door mystery on steroids. Yeah, and she she's able to pull it off. You know, I don't I don't think even you know some of the other greats out there could have pulled it off. I don't think our Sherlock Holmes, you know, type mystery could have done it quite this the same justice that Christie does. And even a lot of like the modern mystery writers who've been inspired from you know, Arthur Conan Doyle and Agatha Christie. I don't think they could pull something like that off. There are very few writers, much less mystery writers, that could pull off a plot as tensely written as this one, full of twists and turns that keeps you guessing even after you've read the last page. So that is, and then there were none. We both recommend it to everyone. Yeah, I know we uh, we started this podcast because we wanted to read books that you know only we like, and then here I go choosing one of the best-selling books of all time. <laughs> but, oh well. But hey, it's one of your favorite books, and that's kind of the idea was pick your favorite books. Exactly. Which is not what we do on the next one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'll, I'll let you introduce this okay. one. I don't want to talk about this one. <laughs> yeah, Alex is about at this point of recording. What do you say? Seventeen pages in, and he's already ready to I'm throw half, it. I'm in halfway the fire. through chapter two. <laughs> so, I chose this next book as kind of a what not to do in your mystery thrillers, following Agatha Christie. It's you know my out of my eight books, my one book that uh, I didn't enjoy. And it's the recent bestseller that just came out, The Butcher and the Wren by Elena Urquhart. She's someone I'm unfamiliar with, but I believe you are a big fan of her podcast. Yeah, she has a podcast called Morbid, a true crime podcast, where her and her niece talk about true crime. And they are witty and quirky and just fun to listen to and banter with each other. And... Uh, my wife and I both listened to them fairly regularly, and when we heard that Elena was publishing a book, my wife was like, we have to get it right now. And boy, was that a disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we'll we'll get into our full uh, our full disdain next time. And if you're you're gonna read it with us, be just. I hope you like pain, you know, self-inflicted pain. <laughs> masochists only next time yeah i don't know if you know if any of you listen to 372 pages we'll never get back but yeah this is right up there Allie. yeah, yeah this, i could see them doing something with this so i hope you enjoy that and see you next month yeah. till next time this has been bookworms <laughs>